0: Welcome to the Road to Cinema Podcast, featuring screenwriter and director Haywood Gould, writer of such films as Fort Apache the Bronx, starring Paul Newman, The Boys from Brazil, starring Laurence Olivier, Gregory Peck, and James Mason, as well as the 1988 hit Cocktail, starring Tom Cruise. We'll discuss how his early work as both a bartender and as a journalist for the New York Post helped bring detail and specificity to his writing and how stepping into the director's chair helped influence and improve his writing process. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions, to see our video interviews with Don Cheadle, Greta Gerwig, Moon Zappa, actor Saul Rubinek, discussing his work with both Clint Eastwood, on Unforgiven and Tony Scott on the film True Romance, written by Quentin Tarantino. And you can also check out some of our past interviews with legendary director Peter Bogdanovich and producer John Peters of Batman. Follow us on Twitter at Jog Road, Instagram at Jog Road Productions, like our Jog Road Productions Facebook page, and don't forget to write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join our conversation with screenwriter and director Haywood Gould as he discusses his early days as a journalist working for the New York Post. One
1: of your first writing jobs, which was at the New York Post, and I was curious what that entailed, what you were seeing on a day to day reality uh, being in New York at that time and documenting everything.
2: Uh, well, I'll the beginning. I was a copy boy there first, and uh, I went to work there. Uh, uh, during the, after the strike, because during the strike that lasted um, nine months, most of the copyboys boys quit. So there was an opening. Um, any job at a New York paper, including copyboy, which was essentially sharpening vessels and you know folding books and getting coffee for people, even that job was really sought after and premium. So I was very lucky to get that job. And then um, I, I hung in for about a year, and I got um, uh, restless, and they must have sensed it because they gave me a try out to be a reporter and um you had a month uh... until you became president in the union so they had a they had a month to look at you and if after the month they decided to hire you they would if not they wouldn't and you'd go back to your final job so there was a lot of pressure and during that month i kept hoping for a good breaking story but they of course were afraid to send a young kid out so they sent me to the toy show the flower show uh... you know stuff like that Um, And I had to make up features about um, the weather, very, very tough stuff. Usually, if you think about it, um, harder, you know, uh, to write and harder to cover than a fire or a police story, which is, you know, kind of lays out for you. Anyway, to make a long story short, they did hire me, and and I became a reporter, and I I was a reporter in the 60s, and that was during the time of uh, riots, uh, civil rights agitation, um, uh, the World's Fair. 64, uh, the stall in, um, just a lot of great stuff for me. So I covered all that stuff. I was 20 years old. I was a kid. Um, I came from Brooklyn, uh, New York, from, from like, a, like a left-wing family. So working for the Post, which in those days was a very, very left-wing paper, uh, so left-wing that some people wouldn't even talk to us, um, was the absolute dream of a lifetime, you know? So um, and I covered um, pretty much all the events of the '60s, mostly civil rights um, riots, uh, demonstrations. Um, interviewed everybody, uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, a couple of times. Uh, it was just a great. It was a great time. Every day was something new. Every day was uh, something exciting. Exciting. I also got a good look at um, what I realized. Uh, then, although I hadn't thought about it, was um, a very segregated city. New York was in 1962, and 3, and 4, and 5, a very segregated city. And a lot of the stories that we covered were about, you know, or we wrote in the um, in the black areas, in the ghetto areas, which were called ghettos in those days. Um, about terrible deprivation. People with rats in their apartments. People who were being evicted. Uh, people who were being uh, 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 exploited in a lot of different ways. Um, so that's, that was kind of an eye-opener for me, because I never really thought of New York as an oppressive city. And in fact, it was.
1: I know you know writing about the police uh, became a really important aspect of the fiction that you've written and also in movies. So were you observing a lot of sort of the power dynamics between the police and uh, the people of New York in a way?
2: Yeah, I covered police. Uh, that was my beat, you might say. I used to report every day I didn't go to New York Police Headquarters, and then they send me out on stories. I go out, and so I got to know cops all over the place, and um, they, you know. They ruled the roost, pretty much. And you didn't mess with them. A cop had a had a short fuse. I know I saw this a lot. The cops would be, you know, trying to arrest somebody or trying to get somebody to do something, not even arrest them. And if a guy argued just one millisecond too long, he'd get smacked, And uh, that was a standard procedure in those days. And um, during the riots in Harlem... Cops, um, you know, ran through the streets, uh, uh, drove through the streets and chose shooting out of the windows of their cars. And you can see photos. And I was there. So, I mean, I saw it, you know, two nights running. You can see photos of cops wading into crowds of protesters, building clubs, at door clubs. And it was, um, you know... A while in time, as yeah. far as I was concerned.
1: Did you ever get pressured to almost not write about those things, or to sort of uh, dial it back a little bit? No, never. Wow. Um,
2: the post wanted everything that I saw. Uh, I don't think the cops had a, or, or the or the establishment in general had a mechanism, you know, to you know to do that, uh, to make a report or not print. It was, as far as that's concerned, it was a very different time, too, than it is today. We were not political. Um, we didn't. If you took sides as a reporter, uh, that was the worst thing to do. Every paper in the city wanted the facts, wanted what happened. They would print what happened. It didn't matter what it was. If it was, you know, brutalizing people, they'd print that. If it was, uh, you know, bad people from the neighborhood doing bad stuff, They'd print that. There was no, the, the only, the only um, requirement was to get it right. That was what you had to do. But I never had anybody tell me what to write or what not to write. Uh, I mean, I had people come to me and say, please don't put that in the paper. <laughs> I didn't mean to say that kind of thing. But, because um, we ignored them totally. Uh,
1: I, know you, them. I know you've said in some other interviews that uh, sort of your real life inspired uh, some of the fiction that you were, you know, that you would later write and even some of the screenplays. So I was curious at that time, were you thinking about taking a lot of these observations that you had experienced as a reporter and putting those into fiction or putting those into screenplays?
2: I guess I had it in the back of my mind. And I think every reporter, uh, you know, has the novel in the desk drawer uh, kind of thing. And, and um, you know, we all want to, you know, Follow the example of the Ben Hecht and the few reporters um, who made it as great novels, uh, You know, Theodore Dreiser, and I'm sure there are others. I'm just not. You know, I'm not remembering them right now. But um, um, I didn't think about writing fiction in those days. I was um, really swept up in the excitement of, of what was going on, and I was lucky because during that particular time, you know, if you work for a paper, even a paper in a, a big city, there will be going on and it's kind of dull. There'll be days when you're sent to just a stupid press conference where they give you a press handout that's already been written and the only thing you have to do really is just, you know, rewrite it for the for the paper. Um, you know, I mean, those days will come and, and there'll be press conferences where you have to sit and listen to a guy, you know, like a mayor or, or some kind of an official, you know, drone on. Um, so that could happen, but most of the time I mean, during that period, There was something exciting going on. The schools were in permanent. People were demonstrating against segregation in the schools. Uh, There was uh, people trying to get into unions. They were demonstrating against uh, discrimination in various unions. Um, Most of the demonstrations got pretty crazy. Um, So cops got involved. Uh, You know, it was just an exciting... And there were a lot of big personalities, a lot of people whose names are forgotten now who were very prominent in civil rights and labor movement and... Stuff like that, uh, who were who've always, you know, closing some kind of an uproar. So it was, it was a good time, plus all the crime stories, which were happening every day, obviously. Uh, um, and I also got to cover trials, so I would cover, the, which I love to do, so I would cover these great murder trials, and we had quite a few of them, too. So, I mean, it was, uh, I didn't think about what my future was going to be, that's for sure.
1: What was your, your first writing job outside of the New York Post? Uh, were, you, were you working for NYPD? At that point,
2: uh, well, I went through a whole period between the post and NYPD where I was uh, <laughs> um, let, let's, I was playing poker for a living. I was bartending. I was uh, I would get an occasional um, assignment to write for a little magazine, pay a hundred bucks. I wrote a couple of those for Commentary magazine. Then I um, I wrote the um, uh, uh, radio scripts uh, for this for this woman who was making. Um, uh, records for the schools of all the classics. So she hired me to adapt, which was a great job. But she hired me to adapt um, all these classic, radio, uh, uh, you know, classic kind of classic comics kind of things. I did Tales of the I did all the Dickens and stuff, and I did uh, King Arthur's Court. So that that went on for a while. Um, I have to admit that I did a couple of porno books that paid really well. They paid ten dollars a page. You could uh, write 200 pages and get 2,000 books, which was a lot of money in those days. I did that, and um, kind of struggled along, you know, uh, you know, trying to make the rent right here and there. And then um, I, uh, I was playing cards with a guy who turned out to be the story editor of uh, of NYPD. His name was Bob Schlitt. He's a nice, great guy. And um, we'd sit around and talk, and I would tell him about all the stories that I had covered, you know, as a reporter. And he said, why don't you come and make a script out of it? So I went over, so he he took me into the office to meet the producer of NYPD. uh, And a guy named Bob Markell, I told him a few of the stories I had covered, the ones that Bob told me to tell him. And they walked me up to David Susskind, who was the big producer, the exec producer on the show. Office. We walked in. First so guy was sitting there. I told him the stories that I had told that I had covered, and they said, "Okay, make, you know, make scripts out of them." And so uh, I was so green that I put quote marks around the dialogue. I didn't. I, never, I had never seen a, um, a television script or a film script in my life, and uh, they gave me one to look at, but I didn't uh, get it all right. So I ended up putting quotation marks around the dialogue. And they left and just took it out. And so I ended up writing six or seven scripts for them. Because um, the thing that I always, that, that I, you know, reflect on now is that could never happen today, and it's kind of sad. Um, I got a job uh, writing for a major TV show. I had no experience, didn't know anybody, didn't have an agent. I just knew that, you know, that a story editor him a couple of stories that interested in him, and they let me take a shot. And, I mean, if I had done a lousy job, I guess they, they would never have hired me again. I mean, that's, that's definitely true. But how many people would have even, even get that you know chance today? In those days, uh, TV shows were not staff-written. They were freelance-written. So you had a story editor like this, like this guy, Schlitt, and a bunch of freelance writers who were coming in and pitching stories all the time. And they would pick out the stories they liked. I mean, they would use writers who they knew and were experienced. But there was a pretty large pool of freelance people who could get a couple of scripts done, you know, by a a TV show in those days. Also, they were shooting 39 shows a season. So they needed 39 stories, which is a lot. And so there was, you know, there was a chance. You know, for
1: people and today I don't think that chance exists yeah it's very uh, it's very insular especially in terms of what you just said of you know you would get an assignment for an episode and you would go off on your own you know today it's everybody in a room sort of carving out what it will be and you know from what I believe you know even just you know one person gets a credit but it's really a team effort in a sense
2: yeah one person uh, the shows I write one person even really gets a credit and another thing that I notice about some of the shows is that um the exec producer takes a writing credit now. That never happened. Um, you know, Bob, uh, again, I keep mentioning his name. He was he was the story editor. And he would edit scripts. he change stuff. Uh, you know, and he was, if they didn't, if you weren't on the set, I was on the set because I lived two blocks away from where they were shooting. So they'd always call me. And, and you know, if they wanted changes, they would, that's another thing that they, they used to do in those days. Um if they wanted anything changed in the script, they called the writer. And you got there, and they would tell you what they want, what they wanted, and you would do it. They didn't do it themselves. They didn't make up little lines that they thought were so cute and, and put them in. They called the writer it. So, um, and, and Schlitt was, uh, uh, would make changes here and there. He never took the credit on anybody else's script. You know, so that's another thing I notice occasionally. I see persons who's the kind of uh, a creator, of the series is also taking writer credit, uh, which, you know, I mean, what that what that effectively means is this person is is getting half the uh, residuals. Um, and if, if the show's a hit, that's a lot of money. Yeah. So anyway, that's what's changed too, you know.
1: Well, I was curious um, from all of your years covering police and covering, you know, being in New York and being immersed in that environment. Uh, did that give you a sense of how to carve out dialogue and really how to uh, dig into the details of, you know, what these stories would be on the show?
2: Well, what it did was tell me that I couldn't make up anything that was as good as what I had observed. And the thing for me to do was to try to kind of structure and harmonize the various things I had seen into a narrative. Uh, Um... And I couldn't make up things, I couldn't make up dialogue better than what I heard, especially from cops who had a great, uh, you know, patter. Uh, and, um, and, of course, street people too, obviously. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I tried to stick pretty closely to what I observed, and I still do. Um, because I thought that people were really interesting, and everybody's got a little quirk kind of story, and that's what you want to bring out. So that's what I did. You know, and I was lucky, as you say, I was lucky because I was in New York, you know, to, you know, to observe a incredible amount of different things and meet a whole lot of different people and hear a lot of different stories. But so I was lucky as far as I was concerned. I was exposed to a lot of stuff. But I tried to stick as true as I could to the, you know, to what I heard and observed.
1: Was there ever a point uh, in the process of working on the show where you sort of understood the mechanics of what a screenplay page looks like and also how that translates into something visual when it's shot?
2: Yeah, oh yeah, I learned pretty quick. I gotta say, after the mortification of of putting quotation marks around um, around the dialogue um, and also overwriting scenes, which I guess most first-time writers do, just writing too much. And um, I remember the first script, the same script I gave was like, this was a half-hour show, and my script was over 50 pages. and They said, forget it, you know. But what they said to me was, you cut it. And I did. And then they ended up cutting some stuff too, obviously. No, I, I made it my business to learn how these shows were shot. I hung around the set and watched how the scenes were shot. I, I watched how the directors worked. And... um I watched how my own stuff, you know, translated onto the screen. And I learned kind of what played and what didn't play. And because you were writing for essentially the same three actors, Um, you know, what they could do, and what they like to do. Yeah, I learned that pretty quick. Uh, I don't want to be embarrassed again.
1: What was, uh, sort of that transition point where you started, uh, sort of venturing into working on movies, uh, you know, like the boys from Brazil, for example, which was a a big writing assignment.
2: Well, I, um, I, the first uh, feature script I wrote was, I mean, other than a few that I wrote for, you know, for people around the city who wanted to make independent movies, so I, I wrote some stuff for them. Um was Port Apache. And what happened was, um, I had an agent uh, who, a book agent, I was trying to get, I was trying to sell books. No thought of writing screenplays at all at that point. Um, The show that I had worked on, NYPD, had shut down in 69. And everybody, uh, a lot of the writers on the show had gone out to the coast. And I didn't want to do that. I stayed here because I was going to write the great American novel. And I wasn't going to waste my time, you know, you <laughs> know, writing TV shows anymore. So um, I had his agent, and he got to know two people. And to like a long story short, because it's a long story, I ended up in the Bronx, uh, riding around with a bunch of cops. And this was in 1972. And um, I wrote. They wanted a screenplay, which was somewhat like a movie that had been very successful the year before, called Super Cops. Super Cops was a movie about two cops who went around the city arresting people. And It had been very successful. So the producers wanted a, a similar screenplay. And they had got and they had hooked up somehow with these two cops in the box. So I rode around in a box with these guys for a couple of months and, um, you know, worked for, the, wrote the, uh, you know, wrote for the Apache. And it didn't get made until 1980. But um, it was a writing sample which then got me. Uh, the same people who were producing, for, uh, Fort Apache, were producing Voice in Brazil. So they hired me to write, you know, the screenplay of Voice Brazil. And that's, that's how that started. Uh,
1: what, uh, you know, when you jumped into sort of doing a writing assignment as opposed to writing something on spec, which is more your own, like Fort Apache is, what are some of those sort of... Political things you have to juggle, and also just in terms of the collaboration process of working on a big studio movie with a director.
2: Well, what happened to me was uh, right till a very right till today. Actually, um, I was allowed, and I realized that this didn't happen with most people. But I, for some reason, I was allowed to go off and write the first draft pretty much by myself. So I would go off and write the first draft by myself, and then you get involved and in, uh, you know rewrites and input from various people. But I didn't have to collaborate on the very first draft. I could pretty much give them what I wanted them to see. And then they would make changes or they would, you know, fire me. <laughs> Whatever they wanted to do, you know. But, um, yeah, I was lucky because I subsequently found out that, that um, actually, there were a few times when when directors would say, you know, come out to the, I was living here, you know, come out to the coast, I'll put you in a motel and we'll work every day. This is how Hitchcock worked with his writers and, and Hawks worked with his writers and you know, all the great directors. And um, I didn't want to do that. You know, I, I told them, look, I'll give you a draft and you give me notes. And a lot of them would go, no. So that would be the end of that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't work with them. The ones who said, okay, you know, they were the ones who who I worked with. I didn't want to have, I I didn't want to sit in a room with a guy for weeks and the way I've heard, I had heard people did uh, for weeks and sometimes months uh, working on a script that might not get made even. And most of the time they didn't. I wanted to, you know, I was happy to take whatever notes they wanted to give me after I gave them a draft. And that's how I worked. So I know it cut off a lot of opportunities for me with other you know, directors who wanted to work with me, who worked in that way. But that was, that, that was okay with me. It's, um, I realized that most of those directors had three or four or more different projects going with different writers. And they were just going to, you know, end up making the one that the studio, you know, that, that came out the best, that the studio wanted to make, and the writer who they had worked with was going to get screwed. A couple of dollars, and now you just wait for six or eight months of your life.
1: Yeah, oh, I didn't want to On uh, I was going to ask you on Boys from Brazil when you were working on that initial draft, were you researching uh, anything about Nazis that were living in South America, or sort of a lot of uh, a lot of the details of, of that situation?
2: I researched um, the Nazis, but I did a, most of the re, most of the research I did was on cloning because I had to write that cloning scene, and we didn't have any footage, obviously, of cloning at that point but um, there was a lot of information uh, information after about what clones were what clones were what cloning was what cloning could be so um i did most of the research i kind of knew a lot of that nazi stuff <laughs> still um but i still read about mangala and read about the angel of death so that i didn't i didn't have good information about them well, i read that and uh but most of the work i did i did you know in preparation you know, for writing that scene where, where uh, Bruno Gaines explains to Olivier what's going on here. Because the, you know, the challenge was to make it really clear. And, you know, in those days, it's 1979. N- nobody really knew, except for a few science fiction people, I guess, you know, what cloning was. So in a movie scene, in the middle of a movie, you have to now kind of stop the action, which is what we, and explain a pretty, you know, complicated scientific concept at that point. Uh, And you have to do it, because otherwise people can't follow the movie unless they know what's going on. So that was the big challenge, you know, to make it interesting and to uh, at the same time make it accurate, you know.
1: What is uh What is your opinion about writing for actors, in a way? Do you ever sort of think about who will be playing the part? Um, You know, like in this case, you have Lawrence Olivier, Gregory Peck, James Mason. Are, are you ever sort of writing with their voices in your head?
2: Well, we were, they, were, they were already cast. So, yeah, in that particular uh, case, you know, we knew they were already cast in the movie. But um, we didn't. I didn't really write anything, you know, for them, you know, to suit their styles, because they could do anything. Uh, you know, you didn't have to, you know, kind of uh, adjust yourself to a certain kind of speech pattern or inflection the way, the way you do with other actors, because those people, those actors could play any part in any way. So we were free to pretty much try to rent you know, kind of realize the characters, you know, and, um as we thought they might be, and the actors played them. Huh. But it, yeah, but every other picture I ever worked on, well, that's not true, because a uh, um, uh, Rolling Thunder, Bill Devane was, was cast already, that movie as well. And the same thing with him. I never felt that I had to, you know, uh, custom make any dialogue for him. He could do anything.
1: What do you think is um, sort of the best way to uh, develop a character and really make a character feel unique on the page when you're reading it?
2: Uh, You know, I wish I knew. (laughs) You know, and I don't. Uh, The only criterion I have is if the person is of interest to me. If I think that person's interesting and I want to render... And I want to, you know, uh, that particular person's personality, style of speech, thoughts, you know, the whole thing that goes into a, a human being. If I think, and then that's my only, um, uh, you know, criteria. And sometimes I've been right. I've, I've, you know, I've created a character that other people like, and sometimes not. But I really know I couldn't, I don't have a formula for it.
1: When it came uh, to Fort Apache, which you said, you know, you had ridden years back, uh, when that film went into production, were you able to collaborate a lot on what was happening? Do you, do you feel like that script and the movie is really uh, one and the same?
2: Yeah, I was. Um, that's pretty much what I wrote, I must say. I was on the set every day. They wanted me on the set because I knew everybody. I knew the cops because uh, I'd been up there. And I knew um, a lot of the neighborhood people. And a lot of the people we cast were people who I had, I had kind of suggested. Some got the parts, some, some didn't. But um, yeah, so I was up there every day, and and it pretty much came out the way I would would have wanted it to. You know, there was there were, I mean there were things that you in the production itself I didn't like the music that much. You know, stuff like that. But other than that, um, it was what I wrote.
1: Yeah, it was just an excellent uh cast. You had Paul Newman and Ed Asner and Danny Aiello. Uh you know, I really feel like they gave some of their best performances in that piece.
2: Danny was great. Yeah, they were great. Paul 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 was good. Paul uh could really act when he wanted to. That's for sure. <laughs> um uh and luckily we had a good percentage of days when he felt like acting. So, you know, uh yeah, it was uh it was a satisf- it was satisfying to watch the every day. I must say, I go in there and I'd see a scene, which is the greatest gratification for a writer, in, in in film and and in the dramatic arts. Anyway, um, I'd see a scene I had written, and boy, they nailed it. They made it even sound better.
1: Wow. Yeah, the- and that
2: happened. And that happened quite a bit during, you know, during that movie. I must say.
1: Yeah, no, as you, as you said before, you know, it's very, uh, you know, unique what you're describing in terms of, you know, you sort of being involved in uh, the process, being on the set. Um, you know, a lot of writers that I've spoken to, you know, they are very detached at a certain point, but a lot of the projects that you've worked on, you seem to be uh, very much immersed in the process.
2: Well, you know, I was told by uh, the director at Tanty Well, you know, we put it as, but I... He was very, you know, he'd been doing this longer than I had. He knew how to handle everybody, and he also knew how to handle me. And um, he said, uh, you know, you have a novelist's approach to a screenplay, meaning, I mean, I I valued every word, and I fought over every word. And I guess what he was trying to say was a lot of the pros in the business kind of let things go, and they, they went on to another project, and because they weren't novelists and, and they, they they understood that the that the screenplay was going to be changed and things were going to be different. You know? So um but I had this novelist approach where I fought for I fought for every word, every concept and I guess I was considered unusual.
1: Now I know um Cocktail was originally a novel and I believe that was based on some of those bartending experiences that you mentioned earlier. Uh you know, the tone of Cocktail the novel transitioning into what Cocktail the movie became, are are those very much uh, a different uh story in a sense or are they are they connected uh in a way?
2: Well, you know <laughs> I mean what happened there was uh, um cocktail was was originally um acquired by a university executive named Barry McClark, which is a very smart guy, but it wouldn't have been made. It wasn't and, um, but he, you know, from the very beginning, the very first draft I wrote, he kept that. Well, every time I'd hand in a rewrite, he would say he's not likable enough, make him more likable. And uh, I would say, well, he's a busted out bartender. has got nothing going for him. He just wants to marry a rich girl. And that's the only thing, the only way he can see his way out kind of this, you know, despondence and gets bond, and he said, you got to make him more likable. So what ended up happening was they put the movie in turnaround because, uh, I guess they didn't make him likable enough <laughs> for somebody. And um, it went to Disney, a people. were surprised. <clears throat> and same thing. Uh, um, an executive named uh, Ricardo Mestres, very, a very good executive, <clears throat> saw the possibilities of doing a movie about this thing. Now, the book had gotten very good reviews and had been kinda of successful, you know, for a for a book that had no that had no promotion. You know, nothing sold on its first printing. They didn't they didn't reprint it but they didn't think they'd sell another book after the but that's the book business. That's for a different discussion. And um they just thought that the scene was worth exploring as a as a movie. He did as well. And we went through the same thing all over again. <clears throat> make them more likable. Make it more likable. Um and somewhere in the middle there, I don't remember exactly where, uh, a cruise got attached to this. So a lot of things had to be changed because in the book, the guy's in his late 30s and in early drafts of the script, he's also in his late 30s. And when people asked me, who do you want to play this back in in those days, I'd say, I don't know, somebody like Nick Nolte. That was my idea of who would play this character based on the guy in the book. And in the early drafts of the screenplay, but then when, you know, when Tom got involved, everything had to change. He was younger. And I participated. I mean, I ate it and embedded it. You know, I wrote all that stuff, coming back to the Army and, and the uncle and going to going to the, um, uh, you know, various uh, career improvement schools and everything, you know, because he was a younger guy. So you had to adjust that, you know. And so I did. And, and it changed to I mean, the, I mean, I've had people tell me uh, you betrayed your book I have had bartenders come up to me and say to me uh I have more than one bartender. uh you know this book was my bible i i I have to buy another copy because I dogged the first one and now you're gonna write this stupid movie and I go look i am you know I'm not gonna send the check back just because you didn't like the movie <laughs> you
1: know
2: um and uh but the, you know, the movie was, like, substantially different in tone, as you just said, in tone, you know, from the book. But I ended up writing some pretty good scenes for the movie that are not in the book. And, um, you know, uh, that's okay, that's good, I thought, you know. Um, And I ended up uh, with a movie that was hugely successful. So here's the thing, when the movie came out, the reviews were so bad that I literally had to go to bed. I just Day for a day. <laughs> you
1: know. Was that before well, the uh, the box office results had come in? Because I mean, I think it was like a tremendous financial it hit.
2: It was a big, huge hit. Yeah. But you know, got, but you know, um, which was great. And um, we didn't we didn't really know that there was an audience this that was loving it. All we heard were all we saw, you know, these terrible reviews across the board. I mean, nobody liked it. Uh, all the big papers, you know, all, the, all the big kind of reviewers, right down to the weekly <laughs> guys, everybody hated it. And um, the so called smart set, you know, the intelligentsia, they hated it too. So that's all we saw. And we didn't really know, although we should have guessed because what was a huge success, you know, financially. There were a lot of people who really liked it. And then, and I was. I felt terrible about it. I felt, you know, and then and then I kept getting all these, uh, you know, feedbacks from Bartender's there from other people too, who said how could you? I mean, the guy in the New York Times, uh, Vincent Canby, who was then the critic of the New York Times, said Mister Gould wrote a wonderful, obscene, beautiful, picturesque novel, and he's destroyed it. That kind of thing. That's in his review. You can look at his review on, you know, online. I mean, wow, fuck! This like this is getting stupid, you know. And um, but then I slowly. It was a good experience for me because I realized something that I should have known all along, really. You're not writing it for yourself. You're writing it for an audience. Sometimes you know what the audience is, and sometimes you don't. But you're not writing it to please yourself. You're writing it to interest other people. And that's what, I, that's what had, happened in that movie. And for some reason, it's now had a, a slow revision, and people like it. The same movie. And, um, I get letters from people and emails from people all the time. Uh, all kinds of people, intelligentsia type people even, you know, didn't like it. <laughs> so it's been reevaluated in a weird way. And I'm glad of that because I look at it, uh, uh now I see, I see the kind of good stuff and the stuff that was put in, uh, by the studio because they wanted to make sure they had a hit.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> um, looking at the film now, it also sort of reflects, you know, 1980s culture, uh, you know, especially through kind of the Brian Brown-Tom Cruise relationship, which I thought was uh, really fun to watch. I thought, you know, their work on screen really, uh, there was a great dynamic there.
2: Yeah, and that came out, and, you know, that's on the book. In the book, uh, I mean, I mean, both characters, the Brian Brown character is in the book, pretty much as you see him um, in the movie, a lot of the dialogue uh, uh, that he has in the movie he had in the book. But he's dead on page 40 or 50 in the book. Uh, he doesn't go through the movie. He's not, a, 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 you know, like a focal point of the plot. Um, you know, he became, he, uh, uh, that relationship, you know, that uh, became kind of important, you know, in writing the movie. I could see that in the father-son, you know, father, son, you know the, uh, the mentor, guru kind of relationship. Um, and so that's very different. Uh, you know, his character is
1: very different in the, in the movie. It's more a, a prominent. Uh, something, something else that I read, which was interesting, is that the uh, a lot of the bottle flipping uh, scenes that we see that really wasn't. I mean, that wasn't in the novel, and that was also something that I think was kind of um, a popular trend at the time. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> I mean, uh, it's not a book. No. And you know we were we used to juggle cans when I was involved. And one particular bar I worked in in Soho was pretty loose, and um, everybody was pretty whack most of the time on everything. So we would we would stay behind the bar and juggle the cans and throw them back and forth to each other, and you know throw the bottles a little bit, not like what they did, but um, I showed them a little bit of what of what we what I had done. It was nothing compared to. And, and then they found this guy who did kind of acrobatic bartending and who went to bartending contests. And so he, he really choreographed and helped them, you know, do all the fancy stuff that's done in the movie, you know. And I remember this also happened to me so often, and still does actually. Bartenders who I knew would come over to me and say, thanks a lot. People come to the bar now and they keep telling me, they want me to juggle the bottles, thanks to you. I got to be a juggler. you know so they were pissed off you know and me again you know that was making their life more difficult and most bartenders just want to get through the night you know I would say probably all bartenders want to get through the night so um, yeah that 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 uh, that that got bigger uh, in
1: the movie looking back Uh, on uh, I was uh, looking back on the movie does it seem like a reflection of what the 1980s were in a sense or even sort of what the culture was reflecting in a way
2: well you know it's, it's funny to, to try to think about how i lived through that period so i wasn't i wasn't stepping out of it and looking at it i was in the middle of it so looking back now um i guess i could say that um yeah it was especially the get rich quick uh the idea that you gotta be a hustler the idea that you gotta make it um plus the bar scene which was. Just really starting what we see now uh, with all these bars was just starting to happen in those days. You know, uh, singles bars, for example, they were relatively new. You didn't, you know, back in the day, even in the '60s, people bar, most bars were either dives or they were cocktail lounges or piano bars. There were very few kind of hangout bars, and that started, you know, with the Maxwell's, with uh, with the big bars on the East Side of Manhattan maybe in the late 50s, early 70s. But the bar scene itself was created, you know, pretty much during that period. You know, it didn't exist before that. You know, you very rarely saw, for example, unescorted females in bars before a certain time. You know, um, it was... And bars were for serious... I mean, most bars were for drinking. Period. You know, unless you went to the, like, the little... Piano ball, cocktail lounge kind of thing. And and even, and they were for listening to uh, the piano player. They were not for getting together, meeting, hooking up, that kind
1: of thing. Yeah, no, that's interesting. You sort of take that scene for granted. You didn't, I, didn't, I never realized that it was sort of something that kind of developed at that time.
2: Yeah, it, it, it developed. It, kind of, it didn't even develop, it kind of just appeared. There's a better way to say it, you know. I mean, it was just there. Uh, these bars started opening up on the east side. Um, people started going, uh, you know. Yeah. On the east side in those days, if I can, uh, was known as the girl ghetto because that's where a lot of young women moved together, um, uh, you know, like, you know, shared apartments. So there were a lot of women in a certain geographical area. And so uh, that, you know, those days, you know, troop guys and... Bars and restaurants were open to accommodate the single wife, which was not, which kind of didn't really exist that much
0: back
1: in the day, you know. Uh, well, I was curious, you know, looking back at the film, you know, I was reading it was one of the top uh, movies at the box office in 1988, and I think even the soundtrack was was at the top of the charts. Were were people or producers asking you, you know, make another? Screenplay like cocktail or, or make something in that vein. Were you, were you ever approached like that?
2: I was approached then and I've been approached ever since. And I was approached uh, a week and a half ago.
1: Really? TV series, <laughs> yeah.
2: And um, people approached me and said, let's do a sequel, let's do a TV series. So I, I just recently wanted to do, um, uh, you know, like kind of like a cocktail too, a, a TV series on one of the big networks. And um, I've been approached ever since.
1: Okay. Do you think we'll, uh, we'll ever see a cocktail TV series?
2: Um, well, you know, they won't see it the characters in the book and the movie because it's a different time. And that's been always a problem. People call me up and they say, there's stuff in the book that we could do because it's not in the movie. I mean, Disney, from a, from a contractual point of view, Disney controls the rights. So if you wanted to do a, um, a sequel or a tv series you'd have to go to disney you know and um but there are people who come and say well there's stuff in the book that's not in the uh, and i own the book so if i guess it's all about contracts but anyway um they said you could just do stories from the book i go yeah uh, you could do that you know and and um, i guess we could make up come up against the idea that that Disney would not be open to that and would, you know, that would be a problem. If we decided to do a TV series, I mean, I could could conceivably use the title, maybe, maybe not. But Disney owns everything. So it usually goes away, you know, for that reason.
1: Uh, Looking at sort of, you know, your career at that point, you were transitioning uh, to directing as well. What were you um, sort of learning about the screenwriting process when you started directing that you maybe didn't realize before?
2: Well, I learned you're going to kick the writer off the set. And if the writer's you, you're going to kick yourself off the set. And, um, which I did. And you got to, if you have good people, uh, uh, you know, actors who, who, want to, who want to make certain changes or who want to do something their way, you got to listen to them. I learned, that the that the movie is very different when it's um, when it goes from page to, to to you know you know to stage, and um, you know I I, I think I, I think if anything I became a better writer you know from directing because I think I really learned what play, what can play, what can you know be dramatic, and what can, and I also learned how it's, how important it is to keep the tension in the scene, you know, which means in the writing and in the playing, nothing extraneous. You know, if you have, I mean, I had a, I worked for a producer named Walter Mirish once. I was writing a TV script. Um, and he said to me, you know, you have too many good lines in this script. He said, go through the entire script and take out the last line of every speech. Just do that. And I, you know, I, it's not like a pat thing to do, but I did it. And he was right. All of a sudden, the script was streamlined, and it flew. You know, it didn't need to have two jokes. One joke was enough. It didn't need to have two great lines, I'm, what I consider to be great lines anyway, and one was enough. Just keep the story going. Keep it moving. Keep the tension and the tautness in the scene, and that's what's going to, you know, that'll keep the suspense. And that'll keep people interested in it. So I learned that, and it definitely made a better writer out of me. It made a better novelist out of me. Because when I look back at the, you know, I, I now try to kind of write a novel with 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 the same, you know, general idea in mind. You know, keep it tense, keep it taut, and don't put in three or four great lines. One's enough. You know? So I learned that, I think, if, if anything, it made me a better writer. So happy about that.